Thank you for listening to this message from Life in the Sun Christian Fellowship. We hope you'll be inspired to honor God and make disciples. Welcome to Life in the Sun. Especially for those who are visiting for the first time or feel new, we're glad that you're here. Hope you feel God's presence and are encouraged and find it life-giving. And uh, we hope to see you again. I want to say I love our church. I love you guys. My wife and I are so blessed to be a part of us honoring God and making disciples together. And uh, I noticed uh, in the announcements there there weren't any anniversaries this week. Uh, So I'm going to take that spot. My wife and I, our anniversary is coming up in a couple weeks. We're celebrating 30 years of being married. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. I'm just amazed at what God has done in the process of making us one. Uh, We are blessed. We are rich in God and in our church family. Uh, We're blessed by our two daughters, Tara and Nicole. And and so we're going to do something big because it's 30 years to celebrate. We're going to go on a little vacation to Portland and visit my oldest daughter, Tara, And we may go camping at Mount Rainier National Park in Washington or maybe go to a little beach house on the coast. We're not sure if we want to rough it or be in comfort. We're trying to decide. I love nature. But I share all that to say this, that in God's kingdom, marriage is a high priority. God is the one who created marriage. It was his idea. And he created the first bride. He's the one who gave away the first bride. And he is in the process of creating another bride that he is going to present. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. A picture of Christ and the church. And, you know, there are many word pictures to describe the church. Uh, A bride is one of them. I think it's probably the most beautiful picture. But there are others. Sometimes the church is described as a house uh, or a building. Uh, The church is not this building. The church is God's people. But we are like living stones that God brings together and puts together and builds the temple of God. And uh, it's a great privilege to be able to serve with you as God grows his house. Uh, Like I said, it's not a building, but we meet in a building So we mentioned that the church is sometimes described as a building or the temple of God, sometimes as the bride of Christ. Um, Sometimes it's described as a body, like a human body with many members that work together with Christ as the head. Uh, Another description is sometimes the church is like a hospital. Uh, Interestingly, a hospital is a place you don't go for permanent residence. You go there temporarily to get well so that you can get back out and do life and the the life that God has given you. I think one of our local favorites, we like to use this term a lot, is sometimes the church is described as a family. Like up here, we saw a church family. And uh, we are all corporately a church family. But today as we're talking about different pictures to describe the church, one picture I would like us to focus on is thinking of the church as the army of God. Last week, Armin talked about the armor of God. And he said that we are not fighting to win. We are fighting to enforce the victory that Jesus has already won. 
We, and, and how do we enforce that victory? Armin said, we need to know the truth. And the truth is this. You have already been given everything you need for life and godliness. Uh, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And uh, everything that you need, uh, Jesus has already accomplished for us. But experiencing that victory and experiencing that freedom is a process. It's a process that requires choices. It's a process that requires learning the counsel of God. We could take a lifetime learning the whole counsel of God. It's a journey that involves repentance and faith and obedience. And it's a lifelong process. And in that process, the enemy is also at work. And he is tempting us to turn away from God, to be distracted, to not connect with God. Because as long as he can disconnect us from the Lord, he disconnects us from our source of being able to have that victory and that freedom. But when we learn to overcome the enemy, when we learn to experience his vic- God's victory, there are benefits. Today I want to talk about how to win with God, how to overcome Satan. Overcoming Satan will allow you to go through struggles in life in a way that you become better, not bitter. You become freer from the things that get you down. You become freer from responding in ways that can be hurtful to you or to others. And you become freer to love God and to love others. In this journey, Satan is at work and he's tempting tempting us to turn away from God. And he does this by creating substitutes for God. These substitutes are designed to distract us, to trap us, to lead us away. And I'd like to show you a video to illustrate the battle. This is a video clip, a scene from the movie Clear and Present Danger. That video clip is an illustration of spiritual battle. There's a very real enemy creating things to make you feel good, but in the end, these things will ruin your life. The enemy is like a master fisherman. A master fisherman, a pole fisherman, is one when he goes out in nature, he watches and looks at what the fish are feeding on. And then he'll look into his tackle box, and he's got a whole set of lures there, and he'll pick out something that looks similar to what the fish are feeding on. And he'll take that and put it on the end of his hook, and then he'll cast that out into the water. In a similar way, the enemy watches to see what we are attracted to. And then he'll look into his tackle box, and he's got this huge tackle box with every kind of lure you can possibly imagine. And he'll take one of those lures that looks similar to what you're attracted to, and he'll put that on the end of the hook, and then he'll cast it out into the pond of your life. And if we're not aware, we can take the bait. And sometimes we fall in temptation, we take the bait, and we think to ourselves, you know what? It's not that bad, nothing really happened. We're going along in life, not knowing 
that there's a hook that's inside us. And sometimes fishermen will let a fish just kind of run out, run the line out. It doesn't reel it in until later. And so that's the thing about temptation. Sometimes the consequence is not instantaneous. Sometimes it's delayed. And every once in a while, the enemy will kind of reel in and bring a little tension on that line, and you'll hear his reel go zzzz. And you're thinking to yourself, something's not right. What? Something doesn't feel right in my life. What's going on? Not realizing that there's a hook that's being set. And eventually, he wants to reel us in. But the enemy is really not the master fisherman. Jesus is the master fisherman. The enemy cannot create. He can only imitate. And Jesus is the one who is the master fisherman. But the enemy creates many imitations that look good to us. And these imitations can be summarized in three categories. The Apostle John, by the way, the Apostle John is the one who was taken up into heaven, and he wrote the book of Revelation. And so he had special insight into this spiritual battle. And he described these three categories for us. They're found in 1 John chapter 2, which says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like in real life? So here's a couple ideas. The lust of the flesh refers to physical appetites. Those things that the body needs for comfort, for satisfaction. The lust of the eyes refers to those things that we desire to have. You might call that materialism. And then the boastful pride of life is all about the kingdom of self. And these are three areas of temptation that Satan presented to Adam and Eve in the garden. We'll read about it in Genesis chapter 3. When the woman saw that the tree was good for, fruit, good for food, that was the lust of the flesh, the physical appetites, when she saw that it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, something desirable that she wanted, that was the lust of the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, that would be the pride of life. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And these temptations are the same temptations that were presented to Jesus when he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. You know, oftentimes we say that the Garden of Eden was perfect. It wasn't perfect. We, we think Adam was perfect, but Adam wasn't tested. On the other hand, Jesus was tested. And Jesus passed the test. And Jesus is perfect. But these same temptations were presented to Jesus... And so Satan came to him. You know, the Bible's kind of funny sometimes. It says after 40 days, Jesus became hungry. But in that state, Satan came to him and he said, if you are the son of God, take these stones and turn them into bread. So which temptation is that? The lust of the flesh, the physical appetites. The other thing that he did is he took him to... Um, he took him to a tall mountain. And he revealed to Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, if you will bow down to me, I will give you these kingdoms. And so that represents the lust of the eyes, things that are desirable. 
And then lastly, he took him to a, a tall temple and he said, if you are who you say you are, then jump. This one is a dot that's a little harder to connect, but basically what he was saying is, is if you are the son of God, then prove it. Show yourself. Prove it. And oftentimes, pride will do that to us. Pride will cause us to try and prove ourselves. Somebody will say something, maybe a critique, maybe something negative, and we're like, oh yeah, I'll show you. I'll prove to you who I really am. And so that was the temptation that was presented to Jesus. But he didn't fall for any of those. You know, a catchy way to summarize these temptations are these. You can go to the next slide. Sex, uh, self, sex, or success. Another way of saying it is the girls, the gold, and the glory. Or another way is the pleasure, payroll, and pride. These are the three cat. These are the three lures that the enemy presents to us, tempting us to lure us away from connecting with God. And I want to just share a, a, a perspective about wealth and pleasure. Um, we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. God created wealth. He owns everything. God created pleasure. He designed pleasure to be a blessing to us. But he designed it in a way that within his guidelines, within the boundaries of healthy living, that these things would be a tremendous blessing to us. But if we step outside of those guidelines, then they become a tremendous hurt and very painful to us. And so we want to keep that perspective in mind that these are actually good things under God's guidelines. If you know anything about lures, you know that they're used for pole fishing, as I mentioned earlier. Anybody ever try pole fishing? Show of hands. Almost half of you. Okay. Well, you know that pole fishing only catches hungry fish. It's different from spear fishing. Only catches hungry fish. Many Christians, in their younger years, they make the mistake of thinking that passion and excitement is enough to live for God. Emmanuel Canastrasi had this to say about passion and excitement. We'll put it up on the screen. Next slide. Youth and zeal are no competition for age and treachery. Do you know who he's talking about here? We have an age-old enemy who is very treacherous. Last week, Armin said, Sometimes a defeated enemy is the most dangerous enemy. Because he's already lost, he's got nothing to lose. Revelation says that when Satan was cast out of heaven, it says he was angry. He's angry and he's a master deceiver. Youth and zeal are no competition for age and treachery. Therefore, we need God to reveal what is true and we need God's help to provide victory in the battle. In his book, The Bondage Breaker, Neil Anderson explains how to use, we can go to the next slide. He explains how to use an important weapon, which is the Word of God. The Word of God reveals who we are and what we have. And we'll spend a lifetime studying and applying the Word of God, but for today, I want to focus on how to win with God. At the end of human history, the book of Revelation reveals who wins, but it also reveals how they win. 
And so we want to read that, Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle. And he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent, called the devil, or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of the brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And the last verse, And they overcame him, and they defeated him by the blood of the Lamb, and by their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. This last verse, verse 11, reveals how believers defeated the kingdom of God, the kingdom of darkness. It reveals how to win with God. In order to win with God, we have to do three things. Before we talk about those three things, let me explain the bigger picture. God wants you to have an abundant life. He wants you to live in a garden. It's called the kingdom of God. And in order to help you get there, Jesus told us to make disciples. Discipleship is when you have a close relationship with another believer and you share the word of God with that person so they can grow. It's that simple. That's what discipleship is. And God has commissioned us to go and do that so that other people can experience his goodness, experience his kingdom, and live in the garden of God's goodness. And so here's a picture to, the, to describe the garden. And there is a pathway that leads to the promised land. And along this pathway, the enemy sets traps to try and slow you down. In order to complete the journey well, in order to avoid the traps, you have to do three things according to Revelation 12:11. Number one, you need to rely on the blood of the Lamb. You, need, you must rely on the blood of Jesus. You must rely on the finished work of the cross and the resurrection. All of this is simply to say we rely on God as the one who saves. And relying on God does three things. Relying on God will give you freedom from the fear of death. Revelation 2 says anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. And then in chapter 20, Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. And then skipping down to verse 14, Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And then in chapter 21, But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and liars. Their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Church, because you've been born again, meaning you've received the Holy Spirit and inherited a new spiritual life, you don't have to be afraid of death. 
You don't have to be afraid of the first death, which is referring to physical death, and you don't have to be afraid of the second death, which refers to the judgment and where those who reject God will go afterwards. So here's a catchy phrase to help summarize it. If you're born once, you will die twice. But if you're born twice, you die once. Relying on the blood of Jesus frees us from the fear of death. Many of you are not afraid of death. For many of you, that's not the issue. The issue is finishing well. And for every person, there will be some degree of regret at the end of our race. And this leads us to the second reason why we rely on the blood of Jesus. We all need forgiveness. Self-condemnation will put you in a prison. But Jesus came to set us free. Recently, I was talking to someone who was suicidal. He's done terrible things, and he just wants to end it all. In the world, there is no solution for emotional pain. But in God's kingdom, there is a healer for the deepest hurt. And it doesn't matter how bad it is, if we let Jesus, if we invite him to join us and be with us in the memory of the hurt, his presence is always enough, and he heals. But even after we experience God's comfort, we have to take a look at our response to the hurt in the first place, because that's another issue. The way someone hurt us, the way someone hurt you is one thing, but how you responded is another. Unforgiveness is a poison we drink, hoping that the other person will die. God's presence heals the pain. But forgiveness stops the cycle of pain from coming back again. And so, to recap, relying on the blood of Jesus frees us from fear and guilt. And thirdly, relying on the blood of Jesus protects us from principalities. I'm talking about demonic forces. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and just felt a heavy presence, a pressure on your body that just caused you to be frozen in fear and gripped you? That's just one example of how the enemy can engage. There are many ways that he causes fear. Fear is just one of his tools. And if you've ever been gripped by fear, simply call on Jesus to literally come and save you in the moment. Calling on the name of Jesus is not a mantra. It's not a magic word. You are literally calling Jesus himself to come and rescue you from a real enemy. And you can also ask Jesus, and, and the moment you do that, sometimes all you have to do is say the word Jesus. And sometimes you can be so gripped with fear, the enemy will kind of like choke you up in your voice, in your vocal cords, that you can't even speak. But if you just get it out, the moment you call on the name of Jesus, it's like, poof, his victory comes and is applied to you and he protects you and you're, you're free from the oppression. You can also ask Jesus to cover you, to hide you, before you get to that point where you're under attack. Before you go to sleep, you can ask Jesus to cover you by the blood of Jesus. Uh, this is what the, the prophet Elijah did. If you recall the story, he was with his servant. His servant woke up one morning, he looked outside, and he saw an army that had surrounded them and was there to kill Elijah. 
And he went and woke up Elijah, and he said, Elijah, there's an army out there. And Elijah prayed, and he said, Lord, would you open my servant's eyes? And then the servant was able to see that there was a host of angelic beings, greater in numbers, surrounding that army. And Elijah actually walked out to that army, and he said to them, who are you looking for? And the Lord had blinded them from being able to see reality as it is. And they said, we're looking for Elijah. And he said, oh, well, I know where he is. He's over in a town over there. Let me lead you. I'll take you there. And he guides this whole army into a town until they're in the center of the town. They're surrounded by their enemy, and then Elijah walks away. That's just a miraculous example of how Jesus can cover you by his presence and protect you and hide you from the enemy. You can ask God to cover you like the nation of Israel did. Remember when they were escaping from Egypt and the death angel was going to come over, the 10th plague, the very last one before they escaped? And the Lord told them to take a lamb, to sacrifice it, to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost, top, right, and left. And then in the night, the death angel passed over all the homes that were covered by the blood of the lamb. And they were protected. And nobody within their within their group, was harmed. You can apply the blood of Christ for the purpose of recovering and restoring your life and places. You can do it for property. I've done that at my home to ask the blood of Jesus to cleanse the land from any defilement, from any sin that has happened in the past, to forgive and to cleanse and restore. You can do that for this church property. You can do it for your home. You can do it for the island of Guam. There was a time on Guam when suicide was on the rise. And a group of Christians got together and we picked out various strategic places on the island to go and pray and worship and have communion. And one of the things we would do is we would take the cup, we would save half of it, and we would pour it on the ground, symbolizing the blood of Jesus. And we said, God, would you cleanse the land, cleanse it from the defilement, from death. One of the places that we did that was Two Lovers Point. Two Lovers Point, if you've been up there and seen the statue, Two Lovers Point is a place where suicide is romanticized and it's glorified. And we took communion there and we poured it on the ground and we said, God, cleanse this land from the spirit of death. And shortly thereafter, Congresswoman Madeline Bredalio, she went on a campaign to all the high schools on Guam, telling them that suicide is not the answer. And we had an opportunity to participate in that and pass out a little magazine called The Book of Hope, which is a synthesized harmony of the Gospels. And we gave every high school student The Book of Hope. And it just went out like hotcakes. And God just on a move because we were relying on the blood of Jesus to save and to cleanse his people. You can do that not just with land. You can do it with parts of your identity, your, your, your physical health, uh, your mental health, just your sense of worth and value, you can ask God to cleanse and restore by the blood of Jesus. And so to recap, the blood of Jesus allows you to be free from fear, the fear of death, to be free from guilt, and to have victory over the enemy. And so this is the first thing you must do. You must rely on the blood of Jesus. In the world, that doesn't make sense. But... The Apostle John was taken up into heaven, wrote the book of Revelation, 
wrote down how it was that the believers and the saints were able to overcome the enemy. This is the first thing. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. The second thing is they overcame him by their testimony. Now, it's interesting that in this particular version, the New Living Translation, it says they overcame him by their testimony. In the New American Standard Bible, it says they overcame him by the word of their testimony. You maintain and grow in your victory only as you verbalize it. It's the word of your testimony. You need to tell people what God has done. In order to live up to what you have attained, you need to tell others. Talking about what God has done is a necessary step to retain what you have learned. Remember the saying, use it or lose it? You only need to be a couch potato for two weeks to lose any degree of fitness that you had. You either use it or you lose it. Uh, here's an example using the brain. The latest brain research shows that you can actually grow your brain. Uh, the old school used to teach that all the nerve cells that you will ever have, you were born with. There's a certain finite number, and that's the number that you live with all of your life. But the most recent brain search says that you can actually grow your brain. All of us grow new brain cells every time we remember something. Memory consists of physical structures in the brain. You create new physical structures every time you remember something. These structures are called dendrites. If you continue to recall what you have learned, those structures become permanent. You know there are some things that you will never forget. There are some things you're like, man, I, what is that person's name? <laughs> it's all about repetition is the key to learning. And if you don't recall or use what you have learned, these structures, these dendrites, they simply dissolve. We overcome the enemy when we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Your mind is renewed as you share it and repeat what God has taught you, what he has revealed to you. As your mind is renewed, you escape from the thinking of this world system. And, and the more you will retain what God has shown you. And so to review two things, we rely on the blood of the Lamb and we share our story, we share what God has done. The third thing that you must do to win with God is not loving our lives so much that we're afraid to die. Dying to yourself oftentimes is not about physical death. Oftentimes it's about dying to those things that we cherish. Sometimes it involves dying to the idea of trusting in myself and my efforts and my accomplishments and what I can do. Not loving our lives is a willingness to surrender those things that are precious to us, those things that are important to you. They could be things like your reputation, your position, your job. I tell you more frequently in the last couple years, I regularly pray that way. I say, Lord, I give up those things that are important to me. I give up my reputation to you. If you take away this job from me, this ministry from me, if you take away my health, if you take away my family, I'm still willing to love you and to serve you and to honor you no matter what happens. And there's a reason for that. I'll explain it in a moment. But there are other areas that we also have to consider giving up as this way of not loving our lives. It could be pride, our home, our dreams, our future, it could be our strengths, our spouse, our kids. 
Why is, why is that something to do? That sounds terrible. This was the test that Abraham went through with Isaac. As you recall, he was promised that he would be the father of many nations. And he had Isaac in his old age. And Isaac was just the apple of his eye, just cherished him in his heart. And one day, the Lord gave him a test and said, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. In the end, if you've read the story, you know that the Lord didn't actually require him to do that. He wanted him to see if he was willing to do that to show that God was still number one in his life. And the reason it's important to show that God is number one in your life is because if there's anything that stands before God, anything that is a higher priority, the enemy can use that as leverage to influence you. Let me give you an example using the example of kidnapping. A kidnapper will take a person, and then they'll send a ransom note, usually to a family member of a wealthy family, and they'll say, unless you give us a million dollars, we're going to end your child's life. I tell you, that kind of strategy, that tactic is demonic. That is dark, and that is evil. But I tell you, that's who the enemy is. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And he will look for something that is precious to you that you're holding on to, and he will threaten to destroy it unless you bow down to him and back off and say, okay, I'm not going to live fully for God. And this is the reason that you have to be able to lay down everything because otherwise you become susceptible to the influence and the leverage of the enemy. And that's the question for us when the enemy threatens us. He wants us to back down from fully living for God. Are you willing to give up the things that are precious to you? This was the courage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In the Old Testament, these were contemporaries of Daniel. They'd been taken from Jerusalem, taken captive into Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar had built a statue in honor of his name. And he commanded that everybody, when the music played, would bow down to him. And it was a test for the people of Israel to see if God was still number one in their life. And these three men, they didn't bow down. They remained standing. And Nebuchadnezzar said, who are those three guys? And his advisors told him. He said, call them. Come, come to me. And he brought them face to face. He said, okay, I'm going to play the music one more time. I'm going to give you another chance. And when the music plays, you bow down. If you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you into the fire. And he heated up the furnace seven times hotter than it had ever been. And he played the music, and they said, O king, we cannot bow down. Our God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. And Nebuchadnezzar commanded some of his strong men to take them and throw them into the fire. The fire was so hot, I don't know if you've ever been next to a big fire. It was so hot that the strong men died carrying them into the fire. And then Nebuchadnezzar took a look. Three of them had been thrown in, and he saw four figures walking around in the flames. And he said to his advisors, did we not throw in three? And he looked, and he said, there's a fourth one in there. And he looks like shining like the sun. And the Lord had actually come. Earlier I talked about calling on the name of Jesus to save you. And the Lord heard their faith and came, and it says the fire did not even singe the hair on their skin. And Nebuchadnezzar called out. He said, come on out. And he went and he inspected them and he walked around and he smelled them. They didn't even smell like smoke. But they were willing to lay down their lives. They were not afraid, not even to the point of death. And that way, the enemy could not use fear to cause them to, to bend, to influence them. 
It's interesting the way Van prayed in the beginning of the service. He was praying that God would cast out the spirit of fear. I want to share with you a couple examples of what it means to, to not love your life. And they fit into the three categories of temptation that, that Jesus presents to everybody. He presented them to Adam and Eve. He presented them to Jesus. You remember what they are? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And so when I first became a Christian, I was 20 years old. And six months into it, the Holy Spirit convicted me and said, stop sleeping with your girlfriend. You know, in order to live a better life, we need wisdom. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, he said, flee from youthful lust. And he would know. He had 400 concubines. And do you know where that led him? At the end of his life, he had drifted away from God. An ungodly relationship will cause you to drift from God. God gave me the wisdom to walk away from that relationship. And so which category does that fall under? The first one, the lust of the flesh. The next one is the lust of the eyes, the desire for things. When I was a non-Christian in my BC days, I used to shoplift. When I was in high school, I lived in Germany. In the wintertime, it was cold. We would wear these big winter jackets, and I would walk into the, into, the, into the mart there on campus, and every day, I would steal my lunch. I'd get an ice cream sandwich on this side and an Almond Joy on this side. I know that's a terrible diet, but I tell you, I had bigger problems in my diet. And then I would walk out, and I would eat it. And that was just my lifestyle. And that followed me into being in college. And I had just become a Christian, and I transferred to the University of Hawaii. And one day I went to the laundry room, and I saw a brand new pair of socks on the shelf. And without hesitation, without even thinking, I instantly reached out to steal it. And in midair, the Holy Spirit said, you don't have to do this anymore. And I just withdrew my hand. And I tell you, one word from God will change you. And I never stole again. So that's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. The last is the boastful pride of life. In this story, maybe about 20 years ago, I was a young pastor, just starting out, brand new. My daughter was about a year old. And there was a guy in our church who was a mental health patient. And one day, the Lord began to use him to speak to me, and he was talking about loving people and loving God. And I remember the pride in my heart. I knew what he was saying was true, but because of my pride, I wouldn't accept it from him. I thought to myself, I'm the pastor. You're a mental health patient. You can't speak to me. And I never said it out loud, but in my heart, I was like just blocking. I was like, no, I'm, I'm not receiving that from you. That was just pride. The boastful pride of life. You know, when you're truly teachable, you can hear from anybody. You can hear in any way that God wants to speak to you. It might be through a movie. It could be through your children. It could be through a book. It could be from a young Christian. It could be from a non-Christian. The Lord in the Old Testament, he actually used a donkey once to speak. The Lord can use any means that he wants, but we've got to be humble enough to be teachable to be able to hear from whatever means God chooses. And so in summary, we overcome the enemy, we overcome the adversary, by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and not loving our lives even to death. What I'd like us to do in 
the time that follows, whether it's during lunchtime today or you gather in your life group during the week, is I'd like us to take some time to talk about how we're doing in this. So here's a couple questions for us. Talk about an area where God has given you freedom and victory and share how did that happen. See, that's the thing. We need to, we overcome him by the word of our testimony. We need to share how God has been at work, what he's been doing. What's the story? And then also share about an area you are currently needing more freedom and victory. And what has the Lord revealed so far? And then take some time to pray for each other. Sound good? On that note, let's pray. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want to ask you to just turn your attention toward the Lord and say, God, what are you saying to me? How are you speaking to me? What is it that you want me to do? You would just take a moment to listen and take a moment to respond to whatever it is that God shows you. for us. And Lord, however you're speaking, however you're guiding us to apply your word, I ask that by your spirit, you would enable us to be able to live it out. Father, we want to rely on you. We want to rely on the blood of Jesus. Lord, we rely on the testimony and the witness of what you've already done to encourage our faith to trust you further. The Lord may be inviting you to lay something down that's been getting in the way between you and him. And if that's something that he has spoken to you about, I just invite you to hitchhike on my words. Lord, you know the things that are a challenge for me, that are a competition with you. Lord, I ask that by your grace, you would enable me to surrender so that you are first and foremost. Lord, I present these things to you. And I ask that you would put them in proper perspective and balance so that they become a blessing and not a hindrance. Lord, would you align, would you calibrate our lives with you at the center, with you as the heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to address some others in the group here today as you're listening to me talk about the kingdom of God, experiencing God and the relationship with God. Perhaps that's something that you've been thinking about recently. In fact, you've been kind of searching in your heart, realizing something is missing and realizing maybe it's God. 
And as a result, you've been searching. In fact, that's why you're here. You're looking, you're listening for the voice of God. And if that describes you, and you've never made a conscious choice to invite God into your life, if you've never made a formal decision to say yes to God, then I want to give you an opportunity to do that. The most important thing is that you sincerely make that decision and then express that to God, which is what we call prayer. And so what will happen is, in a moment, I'll pray out loud. And I invite you to pray along with me. God will hear you. But before we pray, I'd like to know who I'm praying with, and I have a signal for that. And that's this. If you would simply look up when my eyes meet yours, then I'll know that we're going to pray together. And so if that describes you, go ahead and look up at this time, and then we'll pray together in a moment. I see you there. Yes. Anybody else? Right there. Okay. I see you. Okay. I see you there. Anybody else? Yes. I see you there. Don't want to miss anybody. Yes. I see you here. Okay. And in the back. Yes. The two of you. Good. Okay. Anybody else? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm here today and I'm making a decision, I'm making a choice to say yes to you, to open up to you, to say yes, I want to experience you. Lord, I ask that you would reveal yourself, allow me to experience you. Lord, I pray that you would show me your ways. And I ask that you would forgive me for the way that I've been trying to live life on my own. Lord, forgive me for the things I've done that have been hurtful to myself or to others. I thank you for Jesus and what he's done for me on the cross. And today I choose to receive your forgiveness. I choose to receive your spirit of love and grace. And I receive your son Jesus into my life. And if you're praying this prayer right now, just take a moment by faith to let the Spirit of God, the Spirit of love and forgiveness, come in and wash away all guilt, to remove any self-condemnation, and to restore your heart to peace, and to bring you into that relationship with Him, which is a free gift, just by God's undeserved favor. Just go ahead and receive that now. It's for you. This is the reason that he died on the cross, so that he and you can be one. God, I thank you for coming into my life. I thank you for forgiving me. I ask you to cleanse me and wash me as white as snow. May the waterfall of your love just flow through my life and cleanse me through and through. And I ask that you would make me the kind of person you want me to be. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.